It's my job to follow up on something like that. That was good. Thank you very much, Mary. Appreciate it. And for what all that adds to our service, and I trust that it turns your heart to the Lord and you're ready to worship Him this morning. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. Last week we spoke from John chapter 3, and we talked there about what the Lord had to do and deal in concerning Nicodemus and how he came to him and, and asked him this question concerning the fact they were making this statement that he was a man sent from God. And he understood that. And he knew what God had done through previous men in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. And he knew what Jesus had done, had experienced these miracles, and knew that he had come from God. And Jesus then told him that if he was not to be born again, or as we said, born from above, he could not see the kingdom of God. And then he said also in verse 5, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Born of water and the spirit. And we identified that water as baptism. As did, we mentioned, all of the early church fathers understood this to be a reference to baptism. Now, in connection with that, we're going to look specifically this morning at this passage here. And we're going to focus in primarily on 25, 26, and 27, 26 and 27 more in particular. But we, we kind of setting the, the larger context here, Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, begins a, a teaching session, as it were, with them. And as he does in several of his epistles, he begins his epistles with... Uh, doctrinal teaching, and then towards the end, he will finally turn over to practical application of, of what he's just taught. And now he says here in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 22 and 23, it says there, he hath put all things under his feet and gave him, that is Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so to let, set the larger context of what Paul is going to be speaking of in chapter 5, we find that here he sets forth Christ as the head of the church, or the head of the body, he says, which is the church, the assembly. That's us. We are here assembled together this morning, Christ's body having met together, and he is the head over the church, the head of the body. Now, over here in chapter 5, in verse 22, he begins this instruction concerning wives and husbands' relationship. And he says there that they are to be submissive unto their own husbands as unto the Lord. And the reason is because, he says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 
He is the head of the body. Now that, that means simply one thing for me, that you and I, who have, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, been baptized into the body of Christ. That means none of us are the head. None of us direct the church. None of us have authority over the church. He is the head of the church. Now, he uses that in consequence of the husband and the wife relationship, that the husband then is the head of the wife. Therefore, he says in verse 24, as the church, he says, is subject unto Christ, so then, he says, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands are to love their wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So that pretty much breaks it down to a very simple thing. Husbands are to love their wives by giving of themselves, and Christ has set the example in that for us, in that he gave himself for the church. Now the part that we're headed to here then is in verse, verse 26. Notice what he says there. He gave himself for it, that is, for the church, that. That. He's heading for a purpose here. Why did he do that? This is a very standard, common Greek word underlying this word that. It's the word henna. And it has the idea behind it, in order that, or for the purpose of. And so he says here that he gave himself for the church in order that, or for the purpose that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water, by the word. Now this is a somewhat awkward translation. And so one of the reasons we want to take some time here, and I've really done this before, but I want to hit it again. So that we understand exactly what he's speaking of here. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Several questions that we need to ask ourselves regarding what Paul is talking about and what is the order and process that's going on here? In the first place, we have to deal with this word uh, washing. That he might cleanse it with the washing of water. Now, it really isn't that complicated because I know it's something that we've, most of you are very, very familiar with and... We're going to take a look at that in just a moment. But the, there's two words, in essence, for bathing and washing. And we'll take a simple passage in John chapter 13, and one that is very familiar to us, concerning Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And you know the, you know the story well, so you don't, probably don't even need to turn there. You know it well enough. But Jesus, coming to wash the disciples' feet, and 
it says in verse 5 that he, he began to wash the disciples' feet. And then in verse 6, Peter says to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Verse 8, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. And then Jesus told him, if I don't wash your feet, then you don't have any part with me. You don't have any share in me. Well, that shook Peter to the bones. Because he then said in verse 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And the idea behind that is simply this. He says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet or cleanse his feet. Washed and wash, but they're two different Greek words. The first word, wash, has to do with taking a bath and being totally cleansed and clean. Whereas the second wash, wash his feet, means simply having to wash a part of your body. You don't wash the whole thing. In this place, it's talking about washing the feet. Others places, it talks about washing your hands. Or you could wash your face. But it's talking about washing only a part of the person. And so then it says in verse 12, after he had washed their feet. Well, Peter gave in when he realized what he was talking about. That you will have no part or share in me. No inheritance in me. Then Peter was willing to give in. Well, if we come back over here then to Ephesians chapter 5, we find the word here for washing is the same word for bathing, to take a bath, to be completely clean, totally cleansed, washing every part of your body, not just one single part of it. Now, of course, the question is then is what kind of a bath is he talking about? Well, let's turn over to Titus chapter 5, cha excuse me, chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Now, here you're going to find the only other use of this expression in the New Testament. Another familiar passage where Paul says here to Titus, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How? By the washing, a total bath, a total cleansing, by the washing of regeneration. Or, as other translations put it, by the washing of new birth, or by the washing of rebirth. Rotherham says the bathing of a new birth. The modern literal version says through the bath of new birth. And then one other, Coverdale and Tyndale, both render this by the fountain of the new birth. And you get the whole idea that we're talking about a complete submersion in water or immersion all the way in a bath where you're totally cleansed, 
the regeneration or the washing of regeneration, the, the total cleansing of a new birth, a remaking of the man, inner man. So back here in Ephesians 5, when he says then that he might cleanse it with the washing of water, he's talking about a complete bath. The bathing of water. Then he says, cleanse it. Now you notice we're going backwards a little bit. But he says to cleanse it by the washing. And the word for cleansing there is where we get our ordinary English word, catharsis. And we know what a catharsis means is to kind of get rid of something, to get it out of our lives, to cleanse ourselves. And that's how the translators have translated it here, to cleanse. So the bathing in water has to do then with a total, complete cleansing, to make one clean. Now, let's back up again then. And he says, now, to cleanse it with the bathing. There's an article in the Greek. And I hate to be referring so much to it here, but the whole idea is is you've got to do this in order for us to get a clear picture of what he's speaking of here. So he's talking about the cleansing it, the church, with the bath of water. And of course, the word there for water is just the word for water. It's the cleansing of the bath with water. Now, why do we emphasize that? Why do we want to emphasize the fact that it's the bath, the washing? What is he speaking of? Well, when you use the article, then it's talking about something very specific and something that would be well known to the readers. That's what the article means. If I were to use that word in an expression to you, then you would, you would know if I said something like, uh, well, it'd have to be something common and well-known to all of us. So if I talk about church, you don't have any idea what I mean as far as just the general term church. But if I say the church, then that narrows it down. It becomes more specific. And if we were using that terminology... In, in some context in which we were all familiar, then you would know exactly what I meant by the church. The readers here to this letter understood what Paul was saying by the water or the bath. The bath of the water. And that signifying baptism. There is only, there is no other indication in Scripture of what he would be referring to other than baptism. However, our English translation here would lead us to believe that it might be something different because he says the washing of water by the word. And if you you look at it that way, 
then that makes the water here not literal water, but something mystical or spiritual. We would say the washing of, in other words, the word here is what's doing the washing. When in actuality, it's actually just the physical water itself. You're going into the baptismal waters, he says, and washed. And I like to follow that because I take to take the principle that we always take something in Scripture to be literal first. If the literal sense fits and it makes sense, then that's what you stay with. You don't try to make some other spiritual application to it. Having said that, turn with me to Leviticus in chapter 15. And I just want to give another example of this washing, this bathing. In Leviticus 15, notice what it says in verse 5. Whosoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. I'm just focusing on one little aspect of this birth, bathe himself in water. We would understand here that this man who had touched this other man's bed or anybody who had touched it was defiled. And in order to be clean, he must bathe himself completely in water. And the word bathe here in the Septuagint is our same word as bathe over here in Ephesians chapter 5. Luo, to take a complete bath. Now, what does the bathing signify? Well, we said it was baptism. It's in a total immersion. It's clean. And it's also here in the aorist tense. The aorist tense signifies to us that it was a one-time thing. Just like Jesus told his disciples back in John chapter 13, you only need to take a bath one time in regards to what he was teaching them. But to get a foot bath, well, that might require frequency. That might be an often thing. But here he's telling us again that it's a one-time thing. Oftentimes also in Scripture, this aorist tense, because it is a singular event, it happens one time, then it's translated as something as past tense. And that would indicate to us then that it's an occurrence that's already over with and gone. It's in the past. It was a one-time event that occurred. And I said that to say that, well, what I want to do then is really share with you a few other translations. And I want you to listen carefully as you follow along in your English Bible here. What the translators have come up with, in a consistent manner, by the way. In verse 26, Young's literal translation says this, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it with the bathing of the water. Weymouth, in his New Testament translation, says this, in order to make her holy, cleansing her with the baptismal water by the word. 
The English Standard Version says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. You get the idea. The American Standard Version says that he might sanctify it, referring to the church, having cleansed it. The modern literal version says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. And Goodspeed's New Testament says to consecrate her after cleansing her. So what's the point here? The point is simply this, is that sanctification does not come before the cleansing. To sanctify, to set this one apart, comes after. And that's what all these translations here are indicating to us. The Williams translation says the same thing, to consecrate her after cleansing her through his word, as pictured in the water bath. That's quite a literal rendering, isn't it? So what's this? That he might present it to himself a glorious church. That's the end result, the ultimate purpose of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for his church, pictured in the relationship of a husband and a wife. To set the church apart, to sanctify it. Now, he also says down here in verse, verse 26... He says, with the washing of water by the word. We already indicated that the washing is dealing with cleansing. I'll tell you. Let's just look up some verses here. Um, and I hope these don't run us all around too much, but l- look at a, a very obvious one, John chapter 16. It's not the verse I want, so I'm not going to look at that one. Let's do. Let's go somewhere else. Let's go with Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight. Well, I'll tell you what verse I wanted. I want the one I can quote it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What's the reference to that? We're supposed to know that by heart, and for some reason, it's just running away from me. You'll, you'll, you'll find it, yeah. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. 
You remember here, after the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching, and just really, he's presenting the gospel to the Jewish people. And he presents one of the most amazing sermons, you know, you'll ever want to hear. It's just, I love reading this sermon. It's not very long as far as reading it, but it's just awesome to read it. And the, the content, how he's made it so concise and real concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and that one whom they had crucified. And he brings a very, very convincing message showing them that they had crucified, this one whom they had crucified was their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And coming down to verse 36, in making his point there, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Having become convinced that what Peter was saying about Jesus, this one whom they had just crucified a few days earlier, was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that Israel had been looking for for hundreds of years, waiting for him to come, waiting for him to bring this kingdom that he was to establish upon the earth and which every Jewish citizen hoped to participate in and be a part of. And pricked in their heart, having become convinced of it, they asked, what shall we do? Because we're in trouble. And Peter's response to them was very simple. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Hold your thought on that one. Turn over to Acts chapter 16. And there are many other passages I could look at, by the way. We're just going to look at a few of these. But Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. Here again, another very familiar passage where Paul was in prison. And the Philippian jailer there thought that he was in trouble also. And you'll notice what he said there. What must I do? In verse 30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized. He and all his straightway, that is, immediately. And when he had brought them into the house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. He believed what Paul had told him, and you saw that following upon that, baptism. And then I want us to look at Acts chapter 22. Paul's under arrest at this point, and he's giving his testimony again regarding what had happened to him when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll just pick up at about verse 14 where he says, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee that thou shouldest know his will 
and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what Jesus, uh, excuse me, of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and do what? Wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I take that to simply be a part of that baptismal formula that we use. Can you imagine somebody fulfilling the command to be baptized and nobody said anything? The pastor didn't say anything. He just brought someone up here, immersed them in water, and then brought them back up out of the water and then let them walk away. If there was nothing said then we would have no idea about the purpose and the significance of the baptism. But going back to Matthew chapter 28, where we are told there what they are to do when baptizing, and we, excuse me, and we find that familiar formula where, excuse me, we are told there in the Lord's commission to his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then what are they to do? In respect to this idea of sanctification, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we find there that there is a specific formula attached to baptism. And such it was with Peter, or with Paul here in Acts 22. Be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Over here in Ephesians chapter 5, we have a similar expression when he says, by the washing of water, by the word. And interestingly enough, the, the little word by is, the Greek word is en, en. Our English word that this was normally translated by is in, in the word. Washing of water in the word or with the word. In other words, with the word of the formula that attends with it. So what does it all do for us? Jesus, having preached or shared, however you want to say it, his word with Nicodemus, having come to him by night, wanting to know about all that Jesus was teaching and doing, and Jesus immediately tells him, you must be born from above, and if you are not born from above, born out of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here in this passage, Jesus expressing the relationship of husband and wife and Christ himself as the head of the church, which is ultimately to be his wife, 
is to be baptized. Washed in water with the word. Now I want us to notice a couple other expressions here or phrases that are part of this passage that seem to me often overlooked because normally what you will hear here then is this just means across the board then anyone who receives Christ as their Savior is automatically going to be a part of that church, is automatically then going to enter into the kingdom and be a part of that glorious time when Christ comes back to rule over the earth. But I want us to see two expressions there in verse 26. One says that he might sanctify it. You know, there are several expressions in the New Testament that indicate to us possibility. Something that may happen, but there's not a guarantee. I want us to look at just a couple of those, and then we're going to come back and look at some of these here again. Over in uh, James, the book of James, chapter 1. In James chapter 1, you remember we, we made remarks earlier when we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, how so much in the book of James parallels the Sermon on the Mount. And then we were reminded, well, you know, James was probably there. He probably heard Jesus preach all these words. He was very, very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. He understood the application of what that sermon meant to one who was a follower of Christ. Well, notice here in, in James, in verse 18, he, well, in verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And then he says in verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now we noted that last week, the same thing. In John chapter 1, men are not born of God by virtue of their own will. It's God's will that results in our new birth. And we see James expressing that same truth here. Then in verse 19, he begins, as it were, an application of what it means to have experienced that, that gift through the word of truth. That we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, and so on. And notice in verse 21, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And you'll see again, able. Is it a guarantee that he will save your soul? Well, not according to this passage here. Present conduct has to do with the saving of our soul. You see, it's one thing to have experienced new birth from above and having received the gift that he speaks of here in verses 17 and 18, this good and perfect gift which comes from above. 
But it's another thing altogether regarding present-day conduct on the part of a believer and the one who follows Christ. Now, I want us to turn over just a few more pages to the right, and we'll take a look at one more example in the little book of Jude, I say one more example. <laughs> the more you look, the more you, the more you, there's so many of these examples like this. Verse 24, Jude, verse 24. Now, Jude is closing out his letter here that he's written. And he's bringing it to a close. And so he has his, as it were, his benediction here. And he says, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. You know, so many believers just read a verse like that as if it was a guarantee. That it doesn't matter really how I live as a Christian. God is going to keep me from falling and stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. But the verse isn't guaranteeing that. The verse is guaranteeing that he is able to do that. And if you read the rest of the book of Jude, you find, find out here that he's making a strong contrast between false brethren and teachers who have moved into the church and who have gone astray and, and those in the church who have followed after them as opposed to those who have remained true to the gospel. And according to those then who have remained true to the gospel, he is able, he says, to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. And notice how it's going to be with exceeding joy. So we have this element then back in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 or 26 and 27 that he might sanctify it also verse 27 that he might present it to himself I know our English translation says there a church of glory but if you look at it literally it's the assembly in glory now, it would take us a while, and we won't have time this morning to, you know, go through such a, a, a passage like that or, or a, a phrase like that. So I'm only going to say it this way. When you read the scriptures and you talk about the glory, there are many, many passages that talk about the glory in equal measure as being that future glory when Christ comes back to rule over the earth, that 1,000 years in which he will change the world, bring every enemy that has ever been known to man and to the Lord into subjection to him, and he will rule this world with a rod of iron, the scripture says, for 1,000 years. When Paul makes such a reference here in verse 27 that he might present it, the church, to himself, the assembly, in glory. He is 
speaking about presenting the church to himself in that future kingdom of glory. And he says here that he might do so. There are contingencies attached to that. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is what the Bible's teaching us is that once we receive Christ as our Savior, it's not just sit down and relax and enjoy the free ride. There is a follow-up to being a Christian. And that's what he's talking about here. There is a follow-up to this baptism and cleansing in water that he might sanctify it. The sanctification comes after having cleansed it. And so it is with you and I individually. The application here is to you and I that we need to be moving forward in Christian growth, sanctification, grace, and maturity. And you'll notice then the rest of that verse. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now all we'd have to do is stop and ask ourselves a question. If we looked abroad at the church today, would we be able to say it has no spots or no wrinkles? And I think a fair assessment would say, no, the church is in big trouble today. But notice again, as he finishes that verse, he says that it should be, that it should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28 so ought men to love their wives. There's an ought here. It tells us the ideal is expressed to you and I in the love that Jesus Christ had for the church, having cleansed it with the washing of water, that he might then sanctify it, set it apart. And in that, then, he says, so ought men to love their wives. Now, I look at that two ways. <laughs> Number one, that looks pretty hard. That looks pretty awesome. That's a great obligation on your part and mine. Guys, to love our wives as Christ also loved the church. But he tells us there then, sounds awful hard, but if you stop and think about it, it really shouldn't be that hard. And the reason why, here, here's how he says it. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. As their own bodies. And he tells us there that Quite frankly, that's a simple thing. Most guys love their own bodies. Most of us do. We're not ready to get rid of an arm or a leg. Or just give those things up. As a matter of fact, he says, No man ever yet hated his own flesh. Rather, he nourished it and cherished it. Well, the way you nourish and cherish your own flesh, he says, is the same way that Christ nourished and cherished the church. 
And so we should love our wives in the same way. Why is that? Verse 28, 30, rather. He says, for we are members of his body. If we are members of his body, then that means Christ loves, nourishes, and cherishes us. Because we love our own bodies, he loves his body, the church. And so we should respond in like manner and think through our own conduct. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You can't get any more specific or detailed than that to identify who we are in Christ because we are members of his body. Now, some of us have bodies that act cantankerous. They don't get along very well. And so we have things like diseases and things that go wrong with our bodies, and it acts contrary to the way it should. And you know the body of Christ does the same thing? It acts like a cancer. Things get into the body, and it acts contrary to the way it should with its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to end with this verse 32. Well, verses 31, 32, he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Just as the church and the head, Jesus Christ, are to be one and will be one ultimately one day, so the husband and wife. But Paul says that's a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Well, that's an interesting word. Almost, I mean, I couldn't, I don't remember a bunch of times in the New Testament that's translated, be afraid. Be afraid. It means have strong respect or awe or fear. And I wish I understood all the implications behind that. But I don't. The one thing I do know out of this passage is the Lord is telling us that he so loved his church, which is his body, and husbands are to so love their wives in the same way. And I take from that then that I'm able to do that. The question is, is am I? Am I doing that? And what will be my case? What will be my state? What will be my condition when I stand before the Lord on that judgment day? And he deals with me about that. Well, I have to take that in a very serious way. And I have to respond to that in the right way.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this privilege to meet here this morning. And we thank you for the truth of your word, which tells us that by a result and by means of the birth from above that comes from heaven, being born again, that we are placed into the body of Christ. And we know that the word teaches us that you cherish your body and that you love it and you care for it. And I pray, Father, that you will help us today to understand that love you have for us as being a part of your body. And then not only would we respond in like kind in our marriages as husbands loving our wives, but also to take note of what you've said elsewhere, that in the church, all the members of the body are to love one another. And so I pray, Father, that you would grant us that here in this church, that we would respond in such measure that folks would know the love we have for one another here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.